to understand why the old front line ran where it did and how the German army prepared itself for the trial of the 1916 battle. It is necessary to follow the story on the Somme as it unfolded from autumn 1914. Author Jack Sheldon, The German Army on the Somme, 1914 to 1916. Alright folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 1, War Comes to the Psalm. Right now, it is spring 2016. We're about midway through the centenary of the First World War. We're in the centenary of the Battle of Verdun right now, and we're fast approaching the centenary of the Battle of the Somme. Together with the apocalyptic battle at Verdun, the slaughter on the Somme in summer and fall of the year 1916 made that year a particularly notable one as the full power of industrial warfare and industrial scale killing came online on the Great War's Western Front. For those of you new to the subject, the Battle of the Somme kicked off on the 1st of July, 1916, when British and French troops went over the top and attacked German trench lines that had been pounded with Allied artillery ceaselessly for a week. Despite one of the longest and largest artillery barrages ever fired up to that time, the attacks proved only a limited and very costly success. The 1st of July, 1916, retains the macabre honor of being the bloodiest day in the history of British arms. Nearly 60,000 English and Dominion soldiers became casualties that day, with almost 20,000 of that number killed. For this unimaginably expensive sacrifice, the British attacks failed on half their attack front, and where there was some success, there was no dramatic breakthrough. For that many casualties, you'd expect some major returns. And that was just the first day. The Allies, in fits and starts, battered away at the Germans throughout the summer and fall. The Germans, never idle or passive participants, battered back. Until British operations were formally ended in the icy mud of November of 1916, Millions of artillery shells plowed the rolling farmland of Picardy and the Somme Departement into a hellish nightmare scape of utterly ruined villages, shattered trenches, stunted trees, mud, and dead bodies. For four months, British, Dominion, French, and German guns pounded each other as they fought for every trench, every village, and every hillock or wood that offered a slight advantage to the attacker. When it ended, the Battle of the Somme immediately claimed its spot as one of the costliest military engagements ever. 
British forces took some 420,000 casualties, while the French army bled out over 200,000 of its poilus and biffons. For these losses, the British advanced seven miles in four months. In that same time, the French advanced six miles. Between the two allies, roughly 100 square miles of France were reconquered. For its part, forces of the German Empire fought for every inch of ground it gave, but exhausted themselves with the loss of anywhere from 450,000 to 680,000 men. The German army was thoroughly worn out after the Somme. The butcher's bill demanded by the battle seems extraordinarily high when compared to the tangibly miserable gains of the battle. And herein lies some controversy that has come from the psalm. Since the publication of his six-part series, The World Crisis, Winston Churchill's professional opinion that the Battle of the Psalm was basically, as historian William Philpott paraphrased in his mammoth work titled Bloody Victory, The Sacrifice on the Psalm, a battle of... Quote, unimaginative and callous generals, ill-planned and futile offensive operations, high and unnecessary casualties, atrocious battlefield conditions, technophobic cavalrymen failing to appreciate the potential of new war-winning weapons, notably the tank, end quote. Mr. Churchill's opinion accompanied by the opinions of others like authors A.J.P. Taylor and Alan Clark, the latter of whom wrote The Donkeys, has shaped our perception of the Somme battle and as a whole of the First World War itself. In the interest of full disclosure, I have to let you know that as of the writing of this episode, I have yet to read Mr. Churchill's, Mr. Taylor's, or Mr. Clark's books. I'm working on it. They're on the list. So I can't yet judge the merits of these works. I can, however, say that I have grown up with and absorbed the idea that World War I was just a colossal failure with a massive waste and loss of life. With recent works, though, that view is slowly being whittled down. Modern historians like Peter Hart and the aforementioned William Philpott Look at the Somme from a different angle. They try to see the battle, its conduct, and its outcome through the eyes of the men who fought and directed the battle. We see a frontline shift of six or seven miles for the loss of 600,000 plus men on the Allied side and see a failed battle of attrition. But Hart argues in his book, The Somme, Darkest Hour on the Western Front, that the slow grind of the attritional battle was, quote, excruciatingly painful, but it was the only realistic way at the time, end quote. Philpott argues that the Battle of the Somme, quote, was a victory, if an unappreciated one, end quote. The goal of the battle was much the same as that of the German plan at Verdun, to engage the enemy, fix him in battle, and wear his ass out. 
And this the British and French did, as we shall see in the episodes to come. With few other viable options, either side had to settle for attrition. Wearing down your enemy's reserves, steadily reducing his capacity and will to fight until he caved in. It is from this point of view that we will view the psalm. So, moving on, exactly where is the river psalm? And how did it come to pass that the major Allied push in France in 1916 was conducted there? The River Somme is located in the Picardy region in northwestern France. On a map of France, locate Paris and then look almost directly north until you find the city of Amiens, which is actually the capital of the Somme département in Picardy a département being a political and administrative division of France. From Emion, look northeast and locate the towns of Albert and Bapon. These names will be coming up a lot. Looking in a southeasterly direction from Albert, you will see the River Somme, a lazy, meandering and marshy river that runs in a generally westerly direction until it empties out into the Atlantic. The land in this département is that of rolling farmland hills with gentle valleys in between where peasant folk have worked the fertile soil for generation after generation. This is not the flat and wet Flanders plain nor further north near Lille and the southwest corner of Belgium, nor the forests and hills of the Argonne and the Meuse. This is big sky country, where the land underneath is as open as the heavens above it. Breaking the routine of these farmland hills are numerous hamlets, villages, and the occasional town, along with tracts of woods of varying sizes. South of the Somme, on the Santerre Plain, the land is more broken up by villages and farmland divisions than to the north. North of the river, the ground rises as you head west. Subtle ridges rise and then dominate the ground around them, like Tietval, Radon, and Pozier ridges. Below Tietval Ridge runs the river Ancre, which continues on and runs through Albert. Tietval, Pozier, the Ancre, these are names that will come up later and will definitely be on the test. It wasn't that war was new to the Somme Departement. Despite its peaceful country setting of rolling farmland and quaint villages, the area had seen war, and plenty of it, through the centuries. Romans had chased Gauls through the area, and then stayed and founded a settlement named Samarobriva that controlled the region. Samarobriva later morphed into Amiens. After the Romans, came various principalities, kingdoms, and groups, all warring and tearing up the area. In the 9th century, a group of Viking warriors even settled on the Somme for a while. And for that bit of information, I have episode 196 of the British History Podcast to thank. Thank you, Jamie. In the medieval age, there came the ancient enemy, the English, time and again, 
Then in the late 18th and throughout the 19th centuries, the latest combatants to romp through the fields were the Prussians, who became an enemy hated with the heat of a thousand suns. War was the same when it came through. Just the means of delivery changed and modernized over the years. Fighting came, the lands burned, and the peasants got screwed. It was the same from when Caesar's legions marched through to when Prussians saw and shot any civilians they wanted as franc tireur in 1870 and 1871. Every war, every battle that came through brought with it its own particular horrors. The war that broke out in August 1914 would be no different in that sense except in terms of scale. In the summer of that year, no one could have foreseen what was to come in the following four years. Well, several folks actually did foresee what was coming, but they were dismissed or ignored as cranks and kooks. And let me insert this right here, since it seems like the best spot to do so, for a more detailed retelling of the first months of World War I, please go check out the first episode of the Battle of Verdun podcast titled The Background and the Plan. Okay. When the German army's right wing came lumbering into the Somme Departement from Belgium per its vaunted Schlieffen plan, the French army's GQG, Grand Cotier General, or Army Headquarters, had one of the many, ugh, merde, moments it would have throughout the summer of 1914. As Feldgrau-clad soldiers in Pickelhaube helmets marched on the crossroads town of Bapaume, there were no units allocated for the defense of northern France. The French army was out striking east towards the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, as per France's Plan 17. There were literally no troops available to defend this new front opening up in Picardy. When the French army had practiced its plans for war, they had never thought the German Empire might care absolutely nothing for Belgian neutrality and thus steamroll through France's northern neighbor. Or at least, they never planned in accordance with those thoughts if they had them. This naive line of thinking, coupled with propagandistic newspaper accounts of the war's progress thus far, left everyone doubly surprised when reports of German troops entering Picardy began clanging like alarm bells. The first clash on the Somme happened on August 28th at the village of Moilen, east of the town of Albert and to the north of Peron when French troops rushed from the Paris garrison crashed into the advancing Germans. Rifles cracked by the dozen, and then by the hundreds. Machine guns stuttered in the summer heat, and the impossibly loud boom of artillery shattered whatever quiet may have remained. What followed was a day of confused but ferocious fighting for the Germans and the French, the latter of whom saw two infantry regiments wiped out in hours. It was a day of unimaginable terror for the inhabitants of Moilen, 
who were shelled mercilessly by their own artillery because German troops were also ducking low in the town. At the end of the day, the French pulled back haphazardly and the Somme region lay wide open to the Germans. French soldiers had put up a good fight, but they were reservist weekend warriors up against just-blooded front-line German troops. The Germans marched all the way into Amiens, where they promptly began subjecting the now-captive locals to harsh treatment that included rounding up all Frenchmen of fighting age and shipping them back to Germany for what would be years of imprisonment and forced labor. In September of 1914, German Crown Prince Wilhelm's 5th Army was stopped cold in the hills north of Verdun, and the trench lines of the Western Front were born. Then came the wild melee that was the Battle of the Marne, and Imperial Germany's overextended armies were rammed backwards in disarray. The rough trench line snaking out of Verdun reached into Champagne in the N region, and the front lines began to stabilize. Now, with the French and British victory and the miracle on the Marne, a trench deadlock began to set in as neither the Allies nor the Germans were able to outflank each other and deal the hoped-for, crushing, war-ending blow. Two weeks after the occupation of Amiens, the Germans up and pulled out of the city. Then they pulled back, way back, and out of the Somme region. But it didn't last. As trenches and foxholes extended northwestward in the just awfully misnamed race to the sea, where neither the Allies nor the Germans were trying to reach the coast, war came back. So now, the First World War really introduced itself to the Somme, showing its modern take on warfare. Violence, death, and destruction on a massive scale. The Germans again lumbered into the region, half blind this time as they desperately sought to turn their enemy's flank and get ahead of the steadily stagnating front line. Battle centered around the Peron area again, with Peron itself falling to the German Crown Prince Repressed's 6th Army again, and the Sonter Plain south of the Somme becoming a major hotspot. French troops of General de Castelnau's 2nd Army came at the Germans, ready for a fight. These weren't reservists just called up to active duty. These were troops now hardened by weeks of a frightful new war, and they were still riding high on the wave of their victory at the Marne. The French army may have suffered leadership issues, but it really did not suffer from a lack of will or bravery on its soldiers' part. French troops, known affectionately as Biffin, or more commonly as Poilu, meaning hairy, for their proclivity towards facial hair that honestly would make any hipster swoon. These Palus were resilient, battle-tested, and more than willing to deal the hated Bosch, another ass-whooping like the one given out just a few weeks before. They knew why they were fighting. They were defending French land and their people. 
Autumn on the Somme is beautiful. With the sown fields ready for harvest and the woods at their fullest, it is a stunning vision of hill after hill of varying shades of green, broken up with weathered but well-loved villages, hamlets, tracts of rich green forest. The fields were rich with sugar beets. A German officer noted that as the infantry companies advanced, hares sprang up and out of the fields ahead of them, and partridges flew off to avoid the oncoming masses of gray-clad humanity. The fields were described as being as flat as billiards tables, and the late September weather was crisp and clear. Quick aside, folks, uh, from here on out, there's going to be a lot of names of villages coming up. Um, so there are there is a map uh, that is posted on the podcast website page, uh, www.firstworldwarpodcast.com. Just check out the map page on that website. Okay. First contact was made on September 24th as the Germans moved to take over the villages of Schoen and Lyon, south of the river. Heavy fighting developed at Schoen when Bavarian troops marched into what they thought was a burning but otherwise empty town, only to be ambushed by French troops and immediately locked into a firefight. Frenchmen stopped the Bavarians in their tracks. Now, both sides got down to serious business. The Sonter plains south of the Somme lit up frightfully as both French and German artillery opened up on each other with a fury. The idyllic autumn farmland of the Somme disappeared as shells tore through the air like banshees gone mad, striking villages in dirty orange bursts that sent dust and masonry high up into the air. In the fields, shells now plowed the earth, with sugar beets arcing skywards, as well as soldiers, parts of soldiers and their equipment. Rifle and machine gun fire created a wall of noise behind that of the artillery. Stopped at Schoen, the Germans spread out and kept pushing west. In an assault on the village of Vermandovier, a young German expressionist writer named Alfred Liechtenstein fell on that 24th day of September. He was to be one amongst thousands of others like him killed at the Somme over the coming weeks and one amongst hundreds of other artists who would die in the Great War. The battered and smoldering buildings of Schoen were wrested from French hands the next day. Despite this success, the German army's push towards Albert from south of the river was having a tough time moving forward, so the attacks spread south and to the north of the Somme. Between Schoen and Vermandovier, fighting intensified with German infantry pushing with heavy casualties under French infantry and artillery fire. When the two enemies met up close, hand-to-hand combat was not unknown. As the Germans pushed forward, the French gave up ground grudgingly, leaving many red-trousered corpses in the streets and fields of the Somme. From the ruins of Chalons and Vermandovillers and the resultant slowing of the German advance, The fighting bled south to the villages of Halu and Malko. 
Halu fell to the Germans and they occupied the burning ruins of Chili. But French poilus on the flanks stopped any further advance. A frontline trace from Chili to Vermandovier was now drawing itself south of the Somme with the hastily dug trenches of French and German units. As the days went by, the line would snake its bloody path north to put Soyacor and Fay on the front line and to positions just east of German-occupied dompierre Beckencourt, and on until the trenches ended in the Somme marshland and the river itself just west of Eclusier-Vaux. No one really imagined it at the time, but this was largely where the front line would remain until the summer of 1916. On September 26th, the French shelled the German-held Chili mercilessly in order to halt the German push. The guns of both France and Germany would now always be working, targeting and utterly destroying swathes of the farmland battlefield. A German lieutenant colonel caught in the barrage falling on Chili remembered it as, quote, the start of 14 evil days during which we had to endure very heavy fire from dawn to dusk, end quote. North of the Somme, the Germans were more successful. Hard-pressed French territorial troops, the rough equivalent of the U.S. Army's reservist troops today, for a quick comparison, very rough, gave up the important town of Bapaume. The Germans kept rushing more and more men into the Somme battle area, hoping they might find their opportunity to outflank the French and regain the upper hand over the whole war in the West. Of course, the French army was trying to do the same. The vaunted 20th Corps, known as the Iron Corps, formerly commanded by the famous General Ferdinand Foch, pushed east astride both banks of the Somme. The corps of blue-jacketed, red-trousered infantry were headed for Comble, north of the river, and Peron to the south. But the 20th Corps, tough as it was, was stopped on both banks by heavy artillery fire that rocked the countryside. Blood and guts could not stand up to shot and shell. Along with the heavy shelling came German troops from the direction of Bapome, attacking and looking like their chance to turn the enemy flank was now. But, not so. French Army's 21st Corps rushed in north of the Somme, to cover the 20th's open flank. They also put themselves between the Bosch soldiers and Albert as well. In the confusion and panic, however, Fricot village, about four kilometers east of Albert and known as the second village of the Somme, with over 170 houses located there, was abandoned. The Germans wasted no time. They rushed in and took it. Once the French realized their error, they threw themselves at Fricot, trying to recapture it. Brutal close quarters fighting ensued from the end of September and on into the first week of October as Poilus first clawed back half of the steadily pounded village, but were then pushed out entirely by October 7th. German troops pushed their French enemy out of Fricot, but found they could move no further west. 
a hasty night attack on nearby Bicor Hamlet, located between Albert and Fricot, yielded nothing but 800-plus men killed, wounded, and missing for the Germans. The front north of the Somme was now also freezing in place. By October 7th, the opposing lines of scraped-out holes ran from Curlou on the north bank to Maricor and then Fricor. As the fight for Fricor raged, the Germans tried to outflank the French again, attacking the village of Thietfal, some five to six kilometers northwest of Fricor on September 27th. When the first Germans moved into Thietval, they immediately seized any man of fighting age present and took them away, locking them up in the village church. These soldiers then pushed out from the village towards Altui to the southwest, which lay on the road to Albert. When a second unit of Germans entered Thietval, they found the women folk of the village were gathered at the priest's house. These women were in a state of panic terror. For days, the rumble of war had been heard and felt all around them, and most likely could be seen as well with smoke on the horizon. Rumors of Germans became true when troops in field gray and the Pickelhaube helmet entered at the double. With the men taken away, the worst could only be believed by these terrified civilians. The Germans were known for using Schrecklichkeit, terror, as a weapon to keep enemy civilians in line. The lines of Belgian refugees had confirmed all this, and French newspapers had certainly used every tale of German terror to highlight how barbaric the enemy Hun truly was. So far as I can tell, the citizens of Thietval were not physically harmed. The German army, though, was stopped just outside the village and was unable to push any further west or southwest. I would imagine the men, at the very least, would eventually be deported to Germany for what was effectively slave labor. And that's just really not cool, German Second Reich. Really not cool. Southwest of Thietval, there is another incident, taken from Lynn MacDonald's excellent book titled Psalm, that shows the plight of civilians suddenly caught up on a battlefield. Near that just-mentioned village of Altui, between Thiepval and Albert, a local farmer named Borome Vaquet went out on the morning of September 27th to let his cows pasture, as he always did. Yes, the war was near, and getting nearer, but Monsieur Vaquet's cows still needed to eat. Life had to continue as best it could. Borome walked his cows away up towards Thiepval, which sits on Thietval Ridge. Once he had his cows in the right field, he set about penning them in with stakes, wire, and a mallet. It was at this time that French soldiers saw a man hammering stakes into the ground in the morning fog. Taking him for a German, French troops opened up with their rifles and took down Borome Vaquet, killing him on the spot. The French NCO in charge soon realized the terrible error, and he personally informed the Vaquette family through his own tears what had happened. In the meantime, German troops took up positions along the ridge where Borromé's cows were grazing. It would be nine days before a group of Poilus and Borromé's daughters could sneak through the fields in their socks 
to recover his body. Tragedy was striking out at everyone in the Somme Departement. As the fighting around Thietval bogged down, just like at all other points to the south, the Germans and French clashed to the north at Serre on October 5th. Two days later, the front extended further north to the Gomcourt Ebutin area. At Gomcourt, the Germans managed to push the French back and take the village, which sat on a rise of ground and an adjoining spur that had good sight lines and natural defense capabilities. With Gomcourt's environs secured, the Germans dug in, making a salient around the village. Gomcourt will be a big part of the story of July 1916. The front on the Somme was now fully deadlocked. Nevertheless, both sides attacked and counterattacked each other relentlessly. If the French Army's GQG didn't get it yet, the officers and men on the ground got it. The war had changed. Operations were now to assault a trench line, maybe a hundred or two hundred meters away, either for its own particular value or in order to straighten the line. Breakthrough was not possible, not in the exhausted state the army was in. The same went for the Germans across the sugar beet fields. By late October, the lines at the Somme were completely stalled. General de Castelnau wanted to pull his haggard forces back behind the Somme, but General Ferdinand Foch wasn't hearing any of that. By the way, Foch had first been de Castelnau's subordinate and was now promoted to be de Castelnau's boss. So can you imagine how awkward the 1914 Christmas party was? Foch was a member of the Offensive à Outrance, ideology club, where it was all about grain and cruis, guts and uh, truck nuts, uh, which is discussed in the Battle of Verdun podcast episode one, so go check it out. And he said the following, retreat is impossible. You must hold on at all costs and die rather than give up an inch of ground. I won't be argued with in this situation. Hmm. So remember this statement and the man who said it. In late October, the French launched an attack well south of the Somme at Genois, but with no success. By November, the war's focal point had shot and shelled its way north into Belgian Flanders and was now just outside Ypres where thousands more men would be slaughtered shortly. What remained now on the Somme amongst the occupying Germans, the defending French, and particularly French civilians behind German lines was survival until the war could be resolved. With the stagnated front, both the French and the German armies were stretched thin, each having already lost hundreds of thousands of men from the Swiss border to Flanders fields. German supply lines were in disarray. They were supposed to have won the war by now, Gottverdammt. And frontline units had to forage for their food. Most of the time, 
This translated into stealing from the terrified civilians nearby. War had come to the Somme, and now the war was staying. For the French peasants in unoccupied France, they went on harvesting what remained of the summer's crops. For these people, what else could they do? Their sons were all called up and gone. In many places, the war was now stuck in their fields or in their home villages. In unoccupied France, civilians were evacuated to the rear many times with just hope and a prayer of finding a safe place with food. Behind German lines, it was worse. German authorities, despite constant claims that they meticulously followed the international laws of warfare, weren't afraid of executing civilians if they even felt that they might be feeling threatened. French civilians whose homes were near the trenches were sent to the rear, useless mouths, to be joined by more and more people as food grew increasingly scarce. Occasionally, the Germans would round up groups of civilians and trek them to Switzerland, through which they could make their way to free France. These ordeals must have been terrifying. On the now stabilized front, neither side could get the upper hand, so the soldiers in blue and red and field gray dug in and made themselves as comfortable and safe as conditions allowed. Indeed, from the autumn of 1914 on, the Somme front developed like other sectors of the Western Front. Trenches became deeper, more and more barbed wire was laid out beyond the front line, and deep dugouts were burrowed out of the farmland soil. Despite the autumn and the coming winter, there was a problem that affected both sides. That of the thousands of unburied dead laying in between them in what was now no man's land. Even though the steadily falling temperatures put a biting chill in the air, the stink of rotting flesh was everywhere. In addition to being dead and stinking bodies, the dead and stinking bodies attracted hordes of rats that spread filth and disease into the trenches and dugouts of the still living. Patrols went out at night to recover the dead or to quietly scratch out shallow graves without alerting the enemy. No battlefield truces were given to allow collection and or burial of the dead. Other patrols that went out at night were to probe enemy defenses or gather intelligence. Over time, these patrols became more elaborate and more aggressive, with patrols morphing into trench raids that killed and captured enemy troops and left everyone on a hair trigger at night. All this as shells and flares constantly went off at night, punctuated by rifle fire. A routine was setting in with the combatants of both armies. There was the never-ending task of trench repair, the night patrols and trench raids, as well as keeping your head down and fighting the common enemy of winter weather. There were outbursts of fighting all the time, sometimes big, sometimes small, but when things calmed down, the routine picked up where it had left off. Soon a live and let live policy among both French frontline poilus 
and German Frontkämpfer came about. Mud and rainwater collapsed and filled trenches not properly prepared and riveted against the winter weather, particularly among the less well-dug communication trenches between the front line and the rear areas. Because of this, both French and German troops had to scramble over open and exposed ground, bent double, to carry items like food and water to the front. Many soldiers on both sides would pretend they hadn't seen each other and would allow their enemy at least another chance at living a few more hours. It's kind of strange. German troops might pick off an exposed French sentry or ambush and slaughter an entire night patrol. The French might reply to any target of opportunity by pounding the German trenches with shells for hours. Yet, if otherwise just trying to get from point A to point B with a water can after days of cold and soaking rain, they'd let each other go. That's that absurdity of war that only those who have experienced it can understand it, I suppose. As 1914 came to a close, French and German soldiers continued to dig down and improve their trenches. In December, the Germans began to run electricity out to frontline dugouts. I mean, these guys thought of everything. On the other side of no man's land, French troops were being ordered for another attack. At this time, the attack would break the deepening deadlock and begin as French Army Commander General Joseph Papa Joffre told them, the final liberation of the invaded national soil. So on December 17th, French Poilus attacked north of the Somme at Ovier, Mametz, and Fricourt. The attacks lasted until the 21st of December, but lack of artillery shells on France's part and worsening winter weather on Mother Nature's part made sure the attacks failed. The ground was turning to mud under the winter rains, and the trenches were flooding miserably. Attacking under these conditions was bound to be extremely difficult at best. Four days after the French attacks ended came Christmas Day, 1914, and the famous Christmas truce. It was barely observed on the Somme front. At Fricor and Mametz, of all places, French and German soldiers met in no man's land, but only for a very, very short time. Elsewhere, though, when the Germans started singing Christmas carols, the French whistled back with incoming artillery shells. Silent Night? No. Holy Night? Only if I put holes in you, fool. At the end of 1914, as many had already known, the great war that had begun at the end of July had not ended before the leaves fell. There was, now, no end in sight to it. On the Somme front, opposing trench lines zigged and zagged their way through the region. South of the river on the flat farmland of the Sontaire Plain, our area of interest starts with villages that rapidly became fortress complexes, from Chili to Vermandovier to Soyeco to Fay, Dompierre and Frise, 
on the southern bank of the river itself. Across the river to the north bank, the front picked up at Curlu and snaked its way to Maricot and to Carnois, then curving around the shot-up and smoking ruins of Fricot to La Boiselle. From there, the trenches continued to Ovier La Boiselle and onwards north to Thiepval, where the line cut a sharp west and then a sharp north on the ridge before running to Boco, Beaumont-Amel, Abutin, and then Gomcor. From Thiepval to Gomcor, these villages were situated on the Thiepval ridge. The German army had made sure that if it had to dig in, it would do so on the best tactical positions possible. So, this is how the Somme front was formed. And this front line would remain largely unchanged until the 1st of July, 1916. But between the end of 1914 and that brilliant and terrible day 18 months later, the Somme front would by no means be a quiet or cushy sector of the Western Front. Okay, so next time we'll take a look at 1915 on the Somme and then move right into the Allied Conference and negotiations that gave birth to the Battle of the Somme. From there, we'll move into the Herculean preparations for the coming big push. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me through the Facebook at the Battles of the First World War podcast page or by email at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. I really look forward to your feedback. If uh, you have enjoyed this episode, please consider writing a quick review on iTunes. The more reviews, the more visible this podcast becomes, and thus the bigger the audience that this podcast can reach, and thus the more awesomer we become as a World War I history community. And yes, I just said awesomer. Do you know that I work in education? It's shocking. If you would like to make a donation to the support of this podcast, please hop on over to www.firstworldwarpodcast.com where you'll find a PayPal donation button. Any contribution is greatly appreciated and goes toward the running of the podcast. And I'd like to say thanks to everyone who has contributed already. All right, folks. See you soon. Take care.